Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. My name is Jay Rubenstein. I'm director of the Center for the Pre-Modern World here at USC Dornsife. And it's my privilege to welcome you to day two of our symposium, Conspiracies Then and Now. When we look at conspiracies and conspiracy theories as they happened in the distant past, as they're happening today, and we try to draw lessons out of that uh, exercise. Yesterday, we had a great time talking about conspiracies in general, about theories of conspiracy. We talked about how anti-Semitism has played a long um, and troubling role in the history of conspiracies. And uh, we concluded with a talk about how ideas and language of conspiracies travel. Today, we're going to do some deep dives into more fun and well-known conspiracies, um, including the Templars, the Deep State, and maybe the biggest conspiracy of them all, the end of the world. So thanks for joining us. Thanks to my colleagues at the Center for the Political Future and at the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival, who really made this fabulous event possible. And with that, I would like to pass the mic over to Bob Shrum, my colleague at the Center for the Political Future, who will oversee and moderate our first panel. Bob. Hi, good morning, everyone. For most of the next hour, we're going to focus on the Templars, but we're also going to apply the lessons of the Templars to a lot of what we're experiencing today. They were one of the West's most trusted institutions. And then suddenly they were condemned, accused of sodomy, witchcraft, Satan worship, among other sins. Uh, we'll explore how similar trends target America's civic institutions from McCarthyism to the Kennedy assassination to 9-11 to today. Uh, our panel, and we're very grateful to have them here, Sean Field is professor of history at the University of Vermont, where he tells me it's 30 degrees. Karen Pekoski is an award-winning filmmaker, Pulling the Thread, the Associate Professor of Cinema and Television Arts at Columbia College, Chicago. Julianne Thierry is Professor of History at the Université Lyon du Louis Lumière in Lyon, France. And Michael Shermer is an author and a presidential fellow at Chapman University. I'm going to start off with a general question, and I think, Kristen, I'll just throw it to you. Why have conspiracy theories seemingly been so alluring since the beginning of time? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. Um, one of them is that they satisfy a lot of emotional needs for people, particularly when they're faced with um, loss or a sense of disempowerment or a really frightening situation. Um, human beings are really wired to gravitate towards stories that explain those kinds of powerful feelings. And conspiracies do that job really well. They externalize the problem and convince us that it's not our fault um, that this happened. It's somebody else's fault. Um, the system was rigged. The other team cheated, et cetera. Um, they also do a great job of unifying our team against the other side, right? So we see that in the world of politics. If we believe that the other side is conspiring against us, um, it's much easier to sort of rally the troops um, and get them to work together to try and win the next election or the next sporting event or what have you. And 
paradoxically, um, conspiracy theories tend to make people feel a little bit more in control of the situation. Um, that might seem counterintuitive, but part of the narrative is that um, if we just understand what's really happening beneath the surface and expose it, um, then we can neutralize the threat and everything will be right with the world. Anyone want to comment on that or can I go on straight to the Templars? Yeah, I, I agree with Kristen. I think that's that's exactly right. Um, let me read to you just a, a, a couple of sentences from a, uh, uh, well, I'll just read the sentences. How, have you ever wondered why we go to war or why you never seem to be able to get out of debt? Why there is poverty, division and crime? What if I told you that there was a reason for it all? What if I told you it was done on purpose? This is from a QAnon uh, video uh, videographer talking about what he thinks is really going on. And, you know, in response to that, uh, you know, people uh, think, yes, okay. So, you know, complicated issues like war and poverty and human conflict, which social scientists study with, you know, massive regression equations and multiple variables at work. Uh, and it just kind of, uh, it's not romantic, it's not sexy, it's hard work. Uh, and so it's just easier to think, what if it's just this one thing that causes it all? You know, So there's kind of a reduction of explanatory uh, power into just one factor, and that's appealing. Um, it's like, you know, the, the idea that there's, you know, a Jewish cabal or the alien lizards or whatever, that uh, are running the world, scarier than that is that no one's running the world. <laughs> you know, there, there is no committee in, in charge. No one's in charge. And, you know, that's discomforting to a lot of people. And, and you know, that's one aspect. Conspiracy theories are probably overdetermined from a social scientist perspective, but certainly more than one explanatory factor to explain the conspiracy theories themselves, not the least of which is there's just enough True conspiracy theories, that is to say, conspiracy theories that turn out to be true, you know, think Watergate or Iran-Contra or all the shenanigans that the WikiLeaks exposed that the United States government was doing. Those are conspiracies. So in a way, it's not unreasonable for people to think, yes, there might be something to that, whatever that is. Okay, let me go back 800 years to the Templars, uh, who were, as I said earlier, a pillar of medieval society. Who were they? What happened to them? Why and how was it conceivable? Did King Philip of France have an overweening desire to seize their wealth? And did that drive the conspiracy theory or were there other factors? So uh, who were the Templars? The Templars were one of the new military orders of the early 12th century. That means they were churchmen, they were monks, and like any other monks, they were vowed to poverty, chastity, and obedience, but they were also warriors. They were dedicated to the defense of the Holy Land. And across their two-century history, they were a fairly successful, fairly powerful, fairly wealthy order with houses all across Europe until the fall of 1307 when the king of France, Philip the Fair, and the men around him uh, wrote up secret arrest orders and had all the Templars in the kingdom of France arrested with really uh, impressive efficiency on the 13th of October, 1307. And the Templars were rounded up, they were threatened, they were tortured, and most of them confessed within just a couple of weeks. And what they confessed to was a list of charges that centered on the idea that when someone joined the order of the temple, they underwent a secret initiation ritual that involved spitting on the cross, renouncing Christ, uh, worshiping idols, indecent kisses, and agreeing to be available for homosexual acts when asked to do so. And uh, the Pope at the time, Clement V, was 
unhappy about these events because he had not been consulted, because the church was not uh, involved in these arrests and these accusations. And so a month or so later, he had all the Templars all across Europe taken into custody in an attempt to get control of the situation. And there's a whole five-year process with many twists and turns, but in the end, in 1312, uh, the Pope, the church, simply um, dissolves the order without ever clearly making a statement about its guilt or its innocence, uh, simply saying the order is too besmirched, its reputation is too harmed, and so Templars are simply brought to an end without any real clear resolution. And so there was a conspiracy. The real conspiracy was at the level of the King of France and his men launching these false charges, but the charges themselves were that the Templars constituted a conspiracy against the Christian world, against the good Christians of France, and against God's representative in France, the king himself, Philip IV. And maybe Julien could speak more clearly than I, I think, maybe to some of the motivations involved. This has always been the big question. Why were the Templars accused this way of, of such horrible crimes? Actually, no satisfactory answer was ever given. And this is why it has always been said, well, probably the wealth, probably the money. That must be one rational, clear reason. And the, the only one one can, can think of is money, the wealth. And this actually, at the very time of the trial, was said by some people. The counselors of the King of France felt the need to say, we're not interested in the money. Uh, we have texts. Uh, we have a speech of one of the, 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 the king's first uh, closest counselors before the Pope in 1308 saying, this is not about money. And actually, this is, I mean, it's rather easy to, to, to think about this factor, this explanation. And actually, we think about this ex explanation because we have no other. I mean, there's been no other for a very, very long time. And uh, the one most many historians think about now, uh, which is much more plausible, actually, even though albeit maybe a bit more difficult to, to see and understand, is religious. That is, what was at stake uh, with these accusations from the king was who, between the king and the pope, uh, will be now the real vicar of Christ on earth. First in the kingdom of France, and then in the Latin world, but also on earth, simply. Because, I mean, the, the, the vocation of the vicar of Christ is to lead Christianity is to lead the Christians also on the promised land, on the, on the, in the Middle East, and it is to convert everyone. That was, in a way, of course, the mission of the, of the, the Templar Order. Defend the faith in Jerusalem and the very uh, headquarters of the, of the temple, as you know, were located in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, right? The Templars were the papacy's closest order one could say. Both bodyguards, the, both closest bodyguards of the, the, of, the, of the popes, the guys that stood with him every day in his room, the chamberlains, uh, were Templars. And so if the, 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 the King of France suddenly discovered that there was a plot, a Templar plot of the whole order, being this order actually a satanic sect, a plot to overthrow Christianity, that was in an indirect way indicting the papacy Right, saying, well, see, you Pope, you you say you want us to think that you're the vicar of Christ on earth, but you're not able even 
to find out that your closest religious order is a sect, is a heretical sect. This is what what the discovery of the this is what the discovery of of the crimes of the Templars that is the royal conspiracy was all about. Actually, this is one way of seeing it that's getting more and more attention among historians. Were the Templars guilty of something, and why wasn't the target one of the other wealthy orders that resembled them? So, almost all historians today agree that the Templars were not guilty of anything. And where we have the, the proper documentation to do real studies of this, it's abundantly clear that the process was very simple. The king's agents had their, their written orders that included a list of accusations. They were told to threaten, to promise, to torture where necessary. And they did that very effectively. And so when the Templars confessed, these are not freely spoken confessions. They're simply repetitions of the accusations themselves. The accusations become a mirror image of the confessions. And so it's, it's abundantly clear that there simply is no evidence in those confessions to tell you anything about whatever happened in the real world. The confessions just reflect the logic that the power of the state imposed on these people through torture. Uh, but it does mean that confessions were recorded and they were done very properly and legally as notarized documents by people who know how to create documents that would be admissible in legal courts. And they look very impressive. They looked impressive at the time. And they look impressive uh, 700 years later. When historians read them, they look like very clear legal documents and we're trained to read documents very closely. And so you can read through hundreds and hundreds of confessions. And after a certain time, it becomes very easy to feel like where there's smoke, there must be some fire. But in fact, that, that logic is, is deeply flawed and methodologically untenable. No matter how many of these confessions you read, you will not be getting any closer to the truth. You're just reading what the, the power of the French state wanted you to read all these many years later. And Julianne, I think maybe the second half of the question is better, better aimed at you. Well, yes, and one could add that it, it must be observed that there was hardly any confession where torture wasn't used. For instance, it is very often, it is very often uh, underlined that the English Templars who weren't tortured didn't make any confession. Most confessions actually come from the Kingdom of France. And uh, uh, we have very, very few confessions from anywhere else than France, except from areas, for instance, in Italy, where torture was used. And also, if you have to believe what's uh, in, in those confessions, then why would you choose, why would you believe that, that, that those people had a, had a kiss on the anus of the, of the religious master that had them into the order as a sign of a satanic pact, right? As they were accused. Why would you believe this, but not believe that suddenly a black cat appeared and, uh, and you know, made all kind of tricks or that kind of stuff? You can hardly decide. You, you, have, to, you have to say, well, it's true or it's not true, but you, it's not a good method to choose what pleases your mind in those confessions. So can you remind me about the second, questions, the second question exactly? Sorry. Why wasn't the target one of the other wealthy oh, yeah. orders that resembled yeah. the Templars? Actually, this is the key question. I mean, if there is one enigma, it is here. Why the temple? I mean, as I said, the context, you can't understand what happened without taking a deep, a long look at the context. And the context was a war, a symbolic war between the papacy, which had universal jurisdiction over all ecclesiastical lands, throughout Christianity and the rising states. And first of all, the biggest states, the, the biggest state, the most powerful state 
in Christendom that, it, that is the royal French state. And so a few years before the accusations against the temple, the Templar order, the French king and his counselors had launched accusations of heresy against the Pope himself. And you, actually, you cannot separate the trial of the Templars and this first affair a few years before, in 1303. This was unheard of, uh, these accusations against the Pope, as unheard as uh, were unheard the accusations against a whole, uh, a whole order. And actually, one can say that the trial of the Templars is, is stage two of after stage one, which was accusations against the Pope himself and our new pope clement v the, the pope that was accused was who was accused was boniface VIII, and he had died shortly after so why the templar actually the french counselors had to open another line of, of war another battle there still was this battle again about the heresy of boniface the eighth and whether the king of france philip the fair had done well to accuse him or not, and to, to have him sized his very person in Anagni in 1303. Uh, a French counselor had come to Anagni next to Rome and had sized the Pope himself, but he couldn't make it to take him back to France to have him judged by a general council that would have been gathered by the King of France. He couldn't make it to take the, pack, the Pope back to France, and then the Pope dies, and then a new Pope is elected, and you have negotiations to decide whether the suit will go on. What the French king asks is, I want you, new Pope, to acknowledge clearly that your predecessor was a heretic. You need to condemn him, and as a heretic, you need to have his bones taken off the ground and burnt, burnt publicly. You can imagine what this would have meant for the Apostolic See. This would have meant uh, to acknowledge that Christendom had been saved against the Pope by the King of France. And at one stage, as the Pope resists, there is a new affair that starts. So why did they choose the Templars? It seems that the, the answer can be found uh, studying the psychology and the reasoning, the thinking of one royal counselor, that is Guillaume de Nogaret who was a mystical man, a very religious man. But his religion was that of a, of a royal Christianity in a way. In his mind, and this is very clear in the speeches and the texts that he writes at that time, in his mind, a new time has come in the holy history of the chosen people, of the sons of Christ, of the faithful. A new alliance is starting now. and. You may remember that the, the temple was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was located in the history uh, of the Hebrew people. And the order of the temple had been founded on the mount of the temple and its very headquarters were uh, what was thought at that time to be the palace of uh, the Temple of Solomon. Guillaume de Nogaret reads Daniel, the prophecies. We know that he had in his office several treaties about the interpretation of the prophecies of Daniel. Among other things, Daniel says, the abomination of desolation will be settled in the temple when a new alliance will come, right? Between a new people and the Savior and God. So there is a whole, uh, in a way, uh, Guillaume de Nogaret with the Templar affair writes a fifth gospel. A new chapter 
in the history of the relationship between between the faithful and Christ. And there is now a new a new savior on earth, a new vicar of Christ, and his name is the King of France. It's not uh, as as he says, uh, as his counselor says before the Pope, you are only now the spiritual vicar. There is a temporal vicar. And this temporal vicar, who was clearly chosen to be the minister of God in the Templar's affair, in the Templar affair, is the King of France. Let me bring this, uh, connect this with, with modern events. Uh, under different circumstances, a pope might have scorned Philip's pressure on him, or even excommunicated him. But after the outrage at Agnani, to which you just referred, Pope Clement was in the Avignon exile of the papacy. Uh, he was in France, not in Rome. Uh, and he was in no position to excommunicate Philip. So he resisted at first, but ultimately, as we heard earlier, issued a papal bull suppressing the Templars. And I'm fascinated by what he wrote. He didn't state flat out that the Templars were guilty of something. Instead, he said, considering the infamy, suspicion, noisy insinuation which have arisen it cannot be checked while this order remains in being it's a striking non-condemnation exactly and it reminds me actually of a kind of a, a parallel between the pope's rationalization and those who are now arguing that the 2020 presidential results in the united states were questionable and so we need to tighten access to voting to engage in voter suppression not because there's hard evidence of any voter fraud, but because a lot of people believe the election was stolen. And that rationalization has been invoked by political leaders who themselves helped spread the conspiracy theory that the election was stolen and Joe Biden didn't really win. How do you react to the similarity of what the Pope said about the Templars and what's being said almost eight centuries later about the need to investigate uh, the 2020 election, and change all the voting laws in the United States. Isn't that a, a striking parallel? Well, the, the Pope's choice was a compromise, uh, obviously. He, he couldn't uh, afford to, to go against the king, but he couldn't even afford to acknowledge the, the king's lies because the, the apostolic see uh, would have lost in this case, and this was out of the question. But now what you say about what happens now makes me very much think about, uh, you know, what's called in the church the sensus fidelium. That is, you cannot, even if you're right, if, even, if, if, even if the truth is on your side, you cannot govern without consent, right? You cannot, you cannot govern against what's thought, uh, what's commonly thought. So that this was the pretext uh, 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 from the Pope in the Templar case. Uh, people think that it is so defamed that it can't live anymore. So I won't have to 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 judge anything. I would, there will be no verdict about the, the the guilt, the actual guilt or not, because it is enough to see that it can't go on anymore anyway. Whatever the truth is, and so we have to we have to get rid of it. Uh, this general reasoning. Uh, I mean, it's connected to the fact, to, to, to the Christian idea that, that, that power comes from, uh, uh, from heaven, from, from God, but you cannot, uh, you cannot exert power against the people. Christian, you talked about the allure of conspiracy theories. It seems to me that there is a powerful parallel, as I suggested a few minutes ago, between what the Pope said and what's being said about whether or not Biden stole the election. 
is does that fit into this model of people want to believe these things because they're so disappointed by what's happened? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you see that um, there are two professors who, who study conspiracy theories, Joe Parent and Joe Yusinski, um, wrote a paper called Conspiracy Theories Are for Losers. And they looked at conspiracy narratives online and in the media over a period of many, many years. And they found a very consistent pattern that um, whenever a presidential election happens, um, the losing side always cries foul. If you think about it, there are always allegations of voter fraud um, happening on the part of the losing side. And that trend actually continues for the next four years. So um, the most popular conspiracy, conspiracy narratives are usually being uttered by the people whose party is not in the White House. So, for example, when George W. Bush was president, um, 9-11 was an inside job. Dick Cheney and Halliburton were trying to earn money through war profiteering. These were the popular conspiracy theories of that time. Um, and then President Obama took office and everyone was talking about how he faked his birth certificate. He was a Muslim. He wasn't born in America, etc. So there's a pretty clear pattern there. Um, I will say without going into too much detail that the pattern has shifted a bit over the last four years. Um, it was very unusual for somebody to do what Donald Trump did, which was to argue conspiracy theories and fraud, even though he won the election. Um, and I think having a, a conspiracy theorist in the White House has certainly shifted that balance of which party is more inclined toward conspiracy thinking. But that is definitely the pattern over many, many years. Michael, can you uh, can you expand on the implications of all this and what happened to the Templars for modern times? I was struck last week by a poll that found that 29% of Republicans say they think there's something real to the charges that come from QAnon. How important is that? How dangerous? We did a whole issue of Skeptic Magazine that I publish on QAnon. Um, it's one of the stranger conspiracy theories that, that I've been, ever encountered. You know, a satanic cult of pedophiles run by Hillary Clinton and Tom Hanks and Lady Gaga and a few others out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. I mean, this is about as crazy as, as it gets. So let's think about what it means to believe in a conspiracy theory or really to believe in anything. And you say, I, I believe there's something to this. Now, of course, with polls, we, we're dependent upon self-report data. That is to say, when someone ticks a box, I believe that this could be true, 29% of Republicans, 13% of, of Democrats, by the way. So what are they signaling when they say, I, I, I believe this? This is not an objective form of truth, like empirical truth. They can't possibly believe that there's a satanic ring of pedophiles run by the Democrats. I mean, uh, 29%, this is tens of millions of Republicans. They can't be that stupid. And people like Ted Cruz, you know, he's not a dummy. He, he can't possibly believe this. So what they're doing, the conspiracy theory itself is kind of a mythic truth, a mythic belief, a kind of proxy for something else. Like I'm so committed to my party, to, to my party boss, to, the, to, to, to our team, that I'm willing to publicly state I believe this ridiculous claim. Uh, and, and in a way that kind of shines a little bit of light on that uh, with, with Kristen's point on power, you know, it, 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 most conspiracy theories do have a lot to do with power. 
and you know who has it, who doesn't, and who can hang on to it, and and so on. And so these kinds of beliefs are proxies for something else. And you know, if you look at uh, since Kristen uh, Kirsten mentioned uh, 9-11, uh, you know, so, but, but in a way, 9-11 was a conspiracy. It was, you know, 19 members of Al-Qaeda plotting to fly planes into buildings without telling us ahead of time. That's a conspiracy. And it, it took some time to kind of unravel how, how all that came about over the previous decades, really. Where did Osama bin Laden get all that money? You know, well, Saudi money in part. Well, what, what, how did the Saudis get this money? And we're in bed with the Saudis politically. What's going on there? You know, just there's there's much truth about that conspiracy that makes people suspect, you know, something else is going on. And, you know, and, and in 9-11 truth circles, they have this debate amongst themselves about did Bush let it happen on purpose, lie hop, or did he make it happen on purpose, my hop? Well, my take on this is he capitalized on what happened on purpose, cow hop. That is to say, we know that there were never, there was never evidence for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And uh, Bush himself later in his memoir said, this is the dumbest thing I ever did, uh, you know, acting on this. And uh, because they never found him. Well, but really, uh, this is what political people in political power do. They capitalize on things that happen for other reasons, like Roosevelt and Pearl Harbor, there was conspiracy theories that, again, Roosevelt either knew it, ha- knew it was going to happen, let it happen on purpose, or made it happen on purpose. Neither. But he wanted to galvanize the American public against the American firsters. And so after it happened, then he capitalized on what happened to unite the country. So that's the real conspiracy, as it were. It's a type of conspiracy. And, and also, I, I, I also think about or write about, um, you know, a, a sort of constructive paranoia or constructive conspiracism. Again, as I mentioned at the start, enough conspiracy theories are true. True, they're true conspiracies that it's reasonable for people uh, to be suspicious. Like, for example, um, during the Kennedy administration, his chief of chiefs of staff presented him a document of how to uh, create a false flag operation in order to invade Cuba. This was post. Um, the um, Bay of Pigs disaster, and assassinate Castro. And these were like right out of a James Bond movie or some crazy conspiracy theory about, you know, we're going to like shoot down an American plane with college kids going to, uh, you know, Mexico for a party on spring break, and we'll say the Cubans did it. Or we'll we'll buzz Miami airport with a jet that looks like a MiG. And, 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 you know, we'll poison Castro's cigars. And this one was on for pages and pages, Operation Northwood. You should read this thing. Now, to his credit, Kennedy said, we're not doing any of that. That's insane. But that his chiefs of staff, the head people in his administration, thought this was a good idea, tells us that, you know, when someone like Alex Jones says, you know, Sandy Hook was a false flag operation or, you know, 9-11 was a false flag operation, an inside job, you know, that sounds crazy, but it's not completely crazy, you know, because these things have gone on. We know from the Pentagon Papers how much deception was involved by Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson administrations lying to the American public, lying to Congress about the Vietnam War. You know, so when you read that, you go, OK, so I don't trust my government. I just don't because look at all the things they've done. So then when you get something crazy like QAnon, and people go, yeah, I think there must be something crazy going on. Again, I don't think they really believe there's a, well, that one guy believed it. He went to the Comet P- Pizza, Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C. with his gun. 
at least he had the conviction of his beliefs. Because if you really believe there was a criminal ring of pedophiles and no one was doing anything about it, you would want to take the law into your own hands. Okay, now, these 29% of Republicans, they're not going to do anything like that. But again, they're signaling, we don't trust big government or big corporate, you know, anti-vaxxers. They don't trust big corporations. Well, big corporations do cheat. Think of Volkswagen cheating the emission standards in Europe. That's a conspiracy, right? We know we see insider trading reported every day in the newspaper. There's enough of that that goes on that, uh, you know, it's not completely crazy to think there's something to these even crazy conspiracy theories. So I, I, I want to move on and talk about the media a little bit and how these theories get about. In the 1300s, there was obviously none of the social media that today can drive a whole range of conspiracy theories. How did the charges against the Templars reach people in general? Did they? Was this known to, you know, beyond sort of the, the elite circles around the King of France? I can speak to that. And the answer is very definitely yes. And although obviously it's long before social media or movies or TV, but uh, some of the methods were, were quite modern. Uh, the first important step is to force leaders of the order to confess and to confess in public. So within two weeks of their arrests, the, the Grand Master of the Order, Jacques de Molay, was trotted out in public in Paris. A large crowd is gathered purposely to hear him speak, and he confesses that, that the charges are true, almost certainly after having been tortured. And the second means is by gathering uh, some of the first examples of what in, in France are known as the Estates General. It's the same period that the Parliament is taking shape in England. And in France, the, the parallel is, is the Estates General, and it's Philip IV, first in his conflict with Boniface VIII, but then around the Templars, who takes these first steps to gather representatives from the towns, not, not really for what we think of as democratic purposes, but really to hear what the king wants from them. And so people are told they must come from around France to hear what the king has to say in order to gather public opinion behind the king. It's obviously pre-modern methods, but it's a very modern sense of controlling the message uh, and using the, the means available to get what we would call public relations out there. We have a fragmentation now of media sources. We have vast social media networks. People can go wherever they want to get whatever information they want. Does that make it easier to propagate conspiracies, or is the lesson from the Templars that it's always been easier than we might assume to spread what Pope Clement called noisy insinuation? I'm, I'm thinking, for example, in the last century about McCarthyism and the wave of accusations that the Democrats lost China to the communists or the conspiracy theories about the assassination of President Kennedy. I mean, this is all pre-social media, although we had television and radio obviously, we had mass media. Uh, so is it really all that different now than it was 800 years ago? Probably just the speed at which it spreads. Uh, I mean, if you look at the history of the JFK conspiracy theorists you know they started off as just like a, a couple people in a in, in a basement with a mimeograph machine and you know then they print these little ersatz uh, newsletters and spread them by word of mouth but you know the example you just gave in the 13th century you know word of mouth can spread pretty fast in a community you know maybe a few days to a few weeks as opposed to seconds or, or minutes online so it's just a matter of speed but but really a few weeks is nothing still and that's you can get that just by word of mouth I would just add that there are different incentives in the social media space, right? Um, now you can make money by spreading conspiracy theories online. You can um, gather eyeballs and get lots of attention. And um, in many ways, social media is a platform that favors these types of narratives. If it is sensational, 
Um, people are more likely to click on it and share it. Um, if it taps into certain emotions, um, particularly high arousal emotions like fear, anger, disgust, those are the kinds of things that have been shown to make people more likely to click on a headline and to share it. Um, so in that sense, social media really is a good vehicle for spreading conspiracy theories. Um, and we've also seen that, you know, there's been lots of discussion about fact checking and improving journalism and, and people's information diets, which is of course very important, but, um, it's also the case that when fact corrections are published, they are not nearly as widely viewed, right? So you put a sensational claim out there, lots of people click on it and read it and share it. Um, and then somebody tries to come along and correct that a day or two later, that correction is seen by a tiny fraction of the people who saw the original claim. And the more that claim is repeated, the more it solidifies in people's brains, whether it's true or not. So, of course, um, this sort of gets back to the example you gave about um, election fraud, right? It was repeated over and over and over again. And lots of people have said that's totally unsubstantiated. It didn't happen, but it's still solidified in, you know, the the national subconscious. So it's very hard to change people's minds once those things are out there. And I think that's that was true before social media came along, but it works a little bit differently now. Yeah, I'll also jump in here on the uh, on the social media front that, um, you know, there's this uh, movement afoot that uh, social media is, is like an existential threat because of it, uh, pushing us toward a post-truth, fake news, alternative facts world. The evidence for this now is is pretty weak. It looks like most of the social media postings of fake news stories only reinforce what people already believe. The people that didn't believe it are on the other team say it didn't change their minds. It looks like only a couple percentage of people actually absorbed the fake news stories that the Russian bots were posting at, uh, you know, before 2016 and again before 2020 election. So my favorite example of this is if I point out to a far right Trump supporter that, um, you know, QAnon is fake. There is no basement at the Comet Ping Pong uh, pizzeria, which the shooter discovered when he got there and went, oh, there's no basement. Uh, now, it's not like these people are going to go, oh, so QAnon is fake. OK, so Hillary's not doing these things. I think I'll vote for Hillary. No, they were never going to vote for Hillary anyway. This is just reinforcing what they already believe. And here I'd point to Hugo Mercier's uh, book, uh, not, not Born Yesterday. So there's a debate in cognitive psychology about to what extent we're gullible, naturally gullible or naturally skeptical. Well, I like to think we're naturally skeptical since I published a magazine called Skeptic. But, you know, I've long thought, well, humans are pretty gullible. But uh, Hugo points out that um, most cult leaders, for example, uh, fail, um, that most uh, religions fail to get adherence. Most self-help groups don't turn into cults. And most political advertising is a complete waste of money uh, in terms of converting voters. It just reinforces um, the team uh, platform and why you got to get out the vote and so on. They're not really changing minds. They're just trying to kind of reinforce the team spirit and, and get people out to vote. And I think there's pretty good evidence of that now, uh, that most people are not that gullible. And so, I, you know, there's this Netflix documentary called um, The Social Dilemma. It's just two hours of these programmers, uh, you know, self-flagellating for creating the like button on Facebook, like they're J. Robert Oppenheimer with blood on their hands for nuclear weapons. Oh, it's just pathetic. It's like, dude, you're not J. Robert Oppenheimer and social media is not nuclear weapons and it is not an existential threat. 
And, you know, since 2016, you know, there's been a rise in all these fact-checking sites. There's a market for it. These people are making money and you can, they fact check politician speeches in real time and, and people want to know that. And that's the counter to it, not break up the social media companies and, and dissolve them and, and, or criminally accuse them of causing, you know, the, these terrible things. It's just not, not true. As someone who used to make political spots, I won't debate with you the impact of political advertising. Instead, what, I think, what do you oh, think? Uh, I think that there are instances where spots have had enormous power. Uh, I think mm. in 1988, uh, the Willie Horton ad, Bush mm, behind, yeah. uh, you know, and the impact that that had, along with all the other accusations against Dukakis that were put out in spots. So I think there are mm. times when spots have big impacts yeah, and okay. also Good in very yeah. in very close races where if you move just a few votes, mm. spots mm. can be very important. And they're very important mm. in primaries where voters mm. are open to voting for any of a number of candidates because they ideologically generally agree with them. But what I'd like to do is turn this over to our audience and some of the questions that they've asked. And any or all of you can respond. This question is from Susan Rosser. Many of the groups and individuals supporting Donald Trump come out of their belief that Christ directly tapped him as his representative on earth. Thus, whatever Trump posits as truth or any of the conspiracies he supports become part of their belief system as well. The main loud voices promoting this come not only from people around Trump, but from entities like Fox News. Isn't this exactly like a religious conspiracy in the 14th century? <laughs> yes. Well, most candidates say that God's on their side, along with football teams and, and armies. <laughs> but, but literally, but literally, we, we have, literally we, have seen, we have seen people say he is God's anointed, and yeah, he's yeah. going to actually be installed as president on March 4th. And when that yes. didn't happen, they moved the date to June because God yes. has foreordained him to save the United yes. States. This does ring a bell for, for the medievalists. You, you know, you have those theories, mainly from the 13th century on people saying, some people saying, well, the end of the world will, uh, will happen in 1262, 1266. And you, especially in Italy, uh, we know of a huge uh, popular movements uh, related to, to these dates that were given by prophets. And then when the date came and nothing happened, then you, the date was postponed, right? This is, no new, this is nothing new, <laughs> actually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the person that explained that initially was uh, Leon Festinger, uh, the psychologist who, in 1954, joined a group of end timers at the top of a hill uh, outside of Chicago to uh, wait for the mothership to show up. This It was kind of a UFO cult, uh, but it was a religious cult. And they believed that uh, massive floods were going to wipe out the, the Midwest of the United States and they, they were going to escape in this UFO. Anyway, he was curious to see what would happen when nothing happened. So he wrote a famous book about this called Why When Prophecy Fails. And uh, this is where he coined the term cognitive dissonance. That is to say, when there's a conflict between the facts you hold as true and then the counter evidence to it. So when the mothership didn't come, they wrang their hands and, and bewailed and, and, and gnashed their teeth and so forth. But they went home and, and doubled down on the recruitment uh, as a way of, uh, you know, w with the usual rationalizations, what well, we miscalculated or it was a test of our faith and uh, we were rewarded for our, our loyalty. So the earth wasn't destroyed and, and so forth. And, um, and that typically happens. I, I, you know, I was following some Reddit 
pages of people that um, were disappointed after January 20th because they thought, well, you know, that'll do it. But first January 6th, then January 20th, and now, you know, March 4th, and now it's going to be June, I guess. We'll see what happens. They keep pushing the date back. But some people have been uh, disappointed. Like, I just cannot believe it. I thought for sure it would happen. So what will they do? That'll be curious to see in the coming year or two if they abandon it or if they keep it going. And, uh, you know, anyway, so there's a psychological factor there um, that's involved. And the, the curious thing for me was, you know, I've been following the religious right uh, since uh, the moral majority came online in the eighties and, you know, to their credit, at least they seemed to pick people that were actually religious, you know, uh, they, they were Christians, not, not just in name, but they seemed to actually believe it, particularly say George W. Bush. Um, but how could they back Trump? He's got to be the least Christian person in the history of Christianity who claimed to be Christian, right? And so I've asked a lot of conservative uh, public intellectuals and and just regular people, you know, and it seems to be that, well, he's our guy. He, th- th- whoever it is, he's our leader. He's This is my team, and I'm voting my team no matter what. I don't care how many... Uh, you know, women he grabs and, and, and bankruptcies he has or whatever, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Who can say, you know, why he appointed this particular flawed character? Like many of the characters in the Bible are pretty flawed, I've been told, by these Christian conservatives saying, see, you know, Trump's no worse than some of these crazy biblical characters. Uh, and look what they did for, for religion. Oh, okay. <laughs> this next question takes us back 800 years again and Maybe Julian or Sean, you want to address it, uh, comes from Susanna Baxendale. Could I ask a follow-up about the statement yesterday that it was Nogare who wanted to be unexcommunicated, and it was his fear of dying excommunicate, which was behind the accusations against the Templars? This was one of the causes, yes. Yes. As always, there are, different, there are several factors that come together uh, in, a certain, in any situation. Uh, and yes, um, one of Nogare's motives was personal. He was involved in the Anani uh, affair, you know, that moment when, um, uh, in an incredible way for the time, uh, the unbelievable happened. That is, the Vicar of Christ was sized, and it was said that he was also molested. Um, uh, you, you must imagine that for a century, uh, the Vicar of Christ had had a, a tremendous prestige in Christi- throughout Christianity. So the idea that 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 his person uh, could be, you know, captured and 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 yes, uh, he could ma- be made a prisoner. Um, you know, Dante wrote a little later that what had happened to 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 this Pope, whom he didn't like at all, by the way, but what had happened to him renewed the passion of Christ. You know, and that Nogare sizing him and hurting him had done what was done to Christ. Uh, so what, what Nogare had done as a mystical man, he had to justify it. And first he had to justify it for himself, right? Uh, he had to be, to, to convince himself that he'd been right. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, I mean, his, uh, his life after death, of course, was threatened. And uh, I mean, that it was either black or white in his mind. You know, after doing this, you have nothing, you can, you, you have no choice. You, you have to, to move on and you can't stop, right? And we have a very, very interesting uh, letter from a uh, text from Nogare. He's writing down what he's about to tell the king 
uh, about what is to be done now after Boniface VIII's death. Because the king with this new pope thinks that, may, well, maybe he should compromise. He should give it up. I mean, he should give up the, the Boniface goes and, and, and stop asking for the pope's heresy to be acknowledged by, by the apostolic see. Now, uh, Peggy Brown, uh, the great uh, American historian, uh, has rediscovered this text and she has re-edited it. And we see Nogaret uh, saying, uh, I mean, uh, doing a sermon to the king and say, you must not stop now what you've started. You know, Christ didn't stop when he started. You must not stop. And so, uh, of course, one of, uh, one of Nogai's motives is that he is the only one uh, in the royal entourage uh, who's still excommunicated. Uh, the Pope, again, has done a compromise. He has absolved the king who was about who was about to be excommunicated, excommunicated by Boniface DF bef, before Boniface died? He has absolved some people, but not Nogaret. He doesn't want to 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 give it up with Nogaret, and so Nogaret is is very very motivated, and he finds yes, he he makes it. He succeeds in convincing the uh, the Pope uh, to 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 work for him personally and to go on with this general project and and enterprise. We only have a couple of minutes, and there's a question here that I think is not going to be easy to answer in short order, but we'll try. Uh, it's anonymous. If there are true conspiracies, why write off so-called conspiracy theories completely and malign those that believe them? Rather than a binary analysis, wouldn't looking at conspiracy theories on a spectrum seem a better option? For example, uh, one of the presenters compared 9-11 theories and Halliburton war profiting to the birther theory. But why? The United States did arm the precursors to al-Qaeda, including Osama bin Laden in, the, in Afghanistan, and Halliburton did profit from the post-9-11 wars. There was no proof for the birther theory. The former seems more, far more plausible than the latter, and it seems disingenuous to lump them together. So, Michael, yeah, you lump them together. <laughs> I agree. No, I, I'm a spectrum kind of guy. No, continuous thinking is always better than binary thinking for almost everything in life because things are more complicated. So you have to take each conspiracy theory one by one. I mean, Lincoln was assassinated by a, a conspiracy, a cabal. I don't think JFK was. I think it was a lone assassin. Uh, all the evidence points to Lee Harvey Oswald. No evidence points to any other particular candidate. And there are dozens listed all the way up to uh, Vice President Johnson. So, um, yeah, you have to take them one at a time. And, uh, you know, the, there was no evidence for uh, Bush knowing about 9-11. But we have lots of evidence that, you know, he he capitalized on it. He, he used it, which all presidents do. Uh, uh, things that just happen to happen, they use them for, you know, political reasons. That That's kind of normal politicking. So, yeah, one at a time, you know, just what is the evidence? The, the strange thing about the rigged election uh, again, everything was weird about the last four years. Uh, everything was kind of upside down and conspiracy theorizing about conspiracy theories is that uh, usually when leaders of that of your team say, no, no, this one's not real. You know, there are rigged elections. Yes, but not this one. So when it got all the way up to A.G. Barr saying, no, 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 no fraud. Usually the 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 people underneath go, oh, okay, all right, we'll drop this one and move on to something else. But they didn't. That that was what was so weird. But again, that's you know everything is kind of upside down the last few years. The other question that I wanted to ask is a lot of conspiracy theories like anti-vaxxers 
are, da- are literally dangerous. Is there any way to control this, to turn back the tide of conspiracy theories? If any of you have a thought on that, I'd love to hear it. I would say it's, it's difficult because it is really hardwired into our brains and has been for a very long time. A lot of it does come down to trust. So one of the episodes of the Pulling the Thread series has to do with prudent paranoia, this idea that Michael Shermer um, spoke about that conspiracies do exist. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of suspicion um, about healthcare, particularly amongst African-Americans, people of color who have historically been mistreated thanks to medical conspiracy, conspiracies like the Tuskegee um, experiment. And um, there are efforts underway that show some promise that it's really about um, rebuilding trust in that institution, first and foremost. Um, it's really on doctors and healthcare as a broader institution to um, earn that trust, to make sure that doctors look like and know how to speak to the people that they treat in their communities. Um, so, you know, we need some of that rebuilding in healthcare. We need that in science. And of course, we absolutely need it um, in politics. The other thing you can do is try to think about where the root fear is coming from and how to address that fear. If it's economic insecurity, what can you do about that? If it's um, social insecurity around things like immigration, how can you um, sort of address the root problem that people are um, writing a narrative to sort of walk their way back out of it and feel better about it? What is the root problem and how can you address that more directly? I do think in terms of what you just said, that there are conspiracy theories that are very hard to counter because what I think drove the JFK conspiracy theory, assassination theory, was this deep sense of profound loss and the utter incredulity that some guy ordered a rifle through a mail order for twenty two ninety five and managed to <laughs> shoot the president of the United States, which at that time seemed unthinkable. So I want to say thanks to our audience and a special thanks to Sean, to Kristen, to Julianne, who I assume is already home so that he's in in compliance with the French curfew, and to Michael. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture. That's USCPOLFuture. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 